Now, how many of you read 1 John today, or 3 John today? Good, I've been looking for that reaction. <laughs> and delighted that you have here. Well, turn to 3-Eyed John then. There's 1-Eyed John, 2-Eyed John, and 3-Eyed John. This little letter is another glimpse into the intimate life of the early church and is a delightful accompaniment to the second letter. You'll find very similar things in these two letters, although the second letter of John, you remember, was written to a Christian lady about how to handle the false teachers who were abroad in that day. And uh, third John is written to a Christian man about how to take care of the true teachers who were traveling about ministering the word of God. So there's a contrast and a comparison both in these last two little letters from the pen of John. Uh, this letter is a wonderful glimpse into uh, the problem of, uh, uh, of, of personalities within the church as well, as we'll see. And the second letter had to do more with teaching, while this one centers upon persons. And the letter itself divides itself very easily and gathers around the three personalities who are mentioned here. There's a man named Gaius, to whom this letter is written, another man named Diotrephes, and a third individual named Demetrius. And around these three personalities, you have the little letter of John centering, Third John. And these three constitute three kinds of Christians that I think are found in the church in any age. And therefore, like all the letters of the New Testament, this is a very appropriate, up-to-date, relevant, meaningful, and so on, all the modern terms, letter. Uh, you can figure out the English of that sentence later. Uh, we've already read it. Fortunately, so uh, all I need to do is comment upon this. Let's look together first at this first individual, Gaius. Now, there are three Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament elsewhere, and uh, this may be one of them, though Gaius was about as common as name as John in the first century, or as John is today. And therefore, it could be any man named Gaius in those days who was a Christian. We don't know really who this man is, but uh, John evidently knew him, and he addresses the letter to him in a very warm and, uh, and friendly way. And we know from this letter that Gaius was a genial, gracious, generous individual. There are three things said about him that is important to notice. First is that he was strong of soul. That was the thing that warmed John's heart when he wrote to this man. Beloved, he says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in health even as you are healthy in soul, is literally what he said. I'm sorry that the RSV has changed this a little here. I, I think the authorized version here is a little more accurate, uh, that you may prosper in health just as you prosper in soul. That's a wonderful thing to say about someone, isn't it? I wish you would be as strong in body as you are in spirit. Uh, I think uh, we almost have to put it the other way around, don't we? We write to somebody and say, I wish your spirit was as strong as your body. 
But uh, here's a man that you could say this, uh, the opposite. And uh, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to apply this test to people today. Supposing you looked physically like you are spiritually, what would you look like? (laughs) Would you be a robust individual, strong and viral? Or would you be a weakling, uh, just tottering around and barely able to move? What if your spirit, your physical life reflected your spiritual life? Well, Gaius, at least, was the kind who, uh, who, of whom the Apostle John could say, I just wish your physical life was as strong as your spiritual life. And then he was, uh, he was uh, consistent in his actions. In verse 3 and 4, John says, I greatly rejoiced when some of the brethren arrived and testified to the truth of your life, as indeed you do follow the truth. Recall how in Second John we had this word truth brought before us, and uh, it was linked with joy or love, truth and love. Those are the two pillars around which the Christian life must be built. And uh, here they are with regard to Gaius. He showed the truth in his life. And the thing that impressed John was not that he knew the truth, but that he followed the truth. He lived it. He had a consistent life. He didn't preach cream and live skim milk, as someone has put it, but he walked in the truth. And then he was also generous in his giving. In verse 5, Beloved, it is a loyal thing you do when you render any service to the brethren, especially to strangers, who have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey as befits God's service. One of the signs that a person has really genuinely been touched by God is that his pocketbook loosens up. And uh, uh, his giving becomes generous and gracious and cheerful, just as God loves. And you can see this about this man. Uh, He's faithful in his giving. That's the meaning of the word loyal here. It's a faithful thing that you do, which means that he's regular about it and systematic in his giving. He isn't just sporadic giving when his emotions are moved, but he's planned it and he carries through and he faithfully continues the work that he's promised. Uh, what a great boon that would be to uh, missionaries if they could run into some Gaiuses that would back them in their missionary tasks. And second, he gave cheerfully. Well, how do I know that? Because John says he gave as befits God's service, that is, worthily of God. And you remember the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians says that God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want somebody to give because it because he has to, or because somebody's taking a special offering, and he uh, feels like uh, if he doesn't, uh, he will be uh, uh, looked down upon by the rest of the Christians. But he gives because he delights in giving, and uh, uh, this is the characteristic of this man. He gave worthily of God, freely, gladly, generously. I'm grateful for the number of Gaiuses that we have in this congregation. Uh, There's a great many of you that fit this description, and I'm exceedingly grateful for it. Now skip over for the moment verses 7 and 8, because we're going to link that with another individual, and 
come by contrast to this man Diotrephes, who, uh, whom John mentions now. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge my authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, prating against me with evil words, and not content with that, he refuses himself to welcome the brethren and also stops those who want to welcome them and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He who does good is of God. He who does evil has not seen God. Here's the first example that we have in the New Testament of what is called today a church boss. Someone who tries to run the church. Now, he may be an elder or a deacon or perhaps a pastor. We, it's, it's difficult to tell what his relationship was here, but it's someone who conceived of his role as uh, that of uh, telling everyone else in the church what to do. And he became here the first church boss. Now, it's interesting that this little passage tells us something more about the, the early church. It shows that they had some kind of a membership role. Because Diotrephes, if he didn't like anybody, he scratched their name off the list. He put them out of the church. And uh, John objects to that. So that they evidently had some way of, of noting who was a member of a local congregation or who was not. And uh, Diotrephes himself is listed here by the Apostle John as guilty of four, uh, four uh, sins or problems here, attitudes that were wrong. Uh, and, and one of them is supremely important. Uh, you'll notice that John says that, uh, for one thing, this man was guilty of slandering the apostle. He says he prates against me with uh, evil words and uh, refused the authority of the apostle John. Now, uh, we know from other letters that the apostles had a unique role in the history of the church. They were, uh, they were given a word of authority. They were to lay the foundations of the church. All questions within the church were settled by an apostolic word. And it's this apostolic word that's passed along to us in the New Testament. And that's the reason why the New Testament is so authoritative to Christians, or ought to be. It's because it comes from the apostles. And the apostles were given authoritative words by the Lord Jesus. And therefore, their words were to be final. Now, here was a man who, re who disregarded the authority of the Apostle John. And uh, on the other hand, he even uh, spoke against him and said slanderous, evil things against the Apostle. And John says, I'll take care of that when I come. Don't worry about that. He's not harming me, but I'll settle the matter when I get there. But furthermore, he said, Diotrephes was welcoming, uh, the was refusing to welcome the brethren who came. These traveling missionaries and prophets who went about from place to place, ministering the word of God and evangelizing in unreached areas and, and speaking the truth of God. Uh, as they came to this congregation, Diotrephes would have nothing to do with them, turn them aside, and uh, refuse to allow them to speak in the church. And John takes him to task for this. And a third thing he said, 
He not only does that, but he actually puts people out of the church who, who, who would have taken these men in. He indulges, in other words, in what we would call today secondary separation. That is, if uh, uh, he not only objected to the men who came, but he objected to those who would have received them. And this has been one of the curses of the church ever since. Just this uh, last uh, few months ago, I was uh, disturbed when a very prominent leader in uh, in evangelical Christendom, whose name all of you would know if I mentioned it, wrote to Mount Hermon and asked to have his name taken off the speaker list for the summer up there because Mount Hermon was having another man, another uh, group there whom this man objected to, a group who were also widely accepted in the evangelical world. But uh, because of this uh, tendency, you see, to refuse fellowship with somebody who doesn't like someone you don't like, there, is, uh, there has come into the church a wide divisiveness that has done injury and harm beyond recall. You see this oftentimes today centering often around the person of Billy Graham. So many people say, well, I don't like Billy Graham, and therefore I don't like anybody that accepts Billy Graham. And if you have anything to do with Billy Graham, I'll have nothing to do with you. Now, this is the attitude of diatrophies. But of those three things that I've mentioned, none of them was the most severe indictment against this man. There was still a fourth thing, which John puts first, which was the most serious problem with diatrophies. What was it? Anybody? He puts himself first. As the authorized version translates it from the Greek, he loves to have the preeminence. He loves to be first. And this is a dead giveaway that he's acting in the flesh, isn't it? For this is always the philosophy of the flesh. Me first. Me first. And the devil take the hindmost. And here's a man who loved to be first. And because he did that, he was robbing the Lord Jesus of his prerogative. For the Apostle tells us, Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, that it is he who has the right to the preeminence. He should be first. And here's a man who put himself first, and thus was guilty of displacing the Lord Jesus, robbing him of his right to be first in his own church. Now that's the really serious thing. I remember... Dr. H. A. Arnside used to tell in this connection about his experience when he was living here in the Bay Area and attending with a group of worshiping with a group of people in Oakland. And um, every week he he would speak and he was uh, he was the uh, the preacher every week and every week he said every Monday morning he could count on the fact that there would be a letter in his mailbox from a certain brother in the assembly who uh, would take him to task or commend him, one or the other, for his message. And Dr. Ironside said he always knew what the nature of the letter would be by the way it began. Because if it was a letter of commendation, it always began with the words that occur in the letters to the churches in Revelation. To the angel of the church at Oakland, greetings. (laughs) Ah, but if he disagreed, It always started out 
to Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among us. <laughs> and unfortunately, Diotrephes is not passed yet. There are plenty of them in churches today, and they're always characterized by this thing. They want to be first. They want part of the glory. They rob God of his inheritance, steal that which belongs alone to the Almighty, and want to be recognized as first. Well, that's Diotrephes. I remember reading some years ago that Dr. A.T. Robertson, who was an outstanding uh, leader among the Southern Baptists, a great Greek scholar, once wrote an editorial in, a, in the, in the uh, denominational magazine about Diotrephes. And he said the editor of it told him that 25 deacons wrote in and canceled their subscriptions because they felt they were personally attacked. <laughs> well, that's how many Diotrephes there were in the Southern Baptist denomination. But I don't know how many there are with us. But uh, notice that John doesn't say to Gaius, now look, Gaius, you get yourself together, all the people that don't like Diotrephes, and organize a split, and we'll start another church. He doesn't say that. He says to him, uh, continue walking in the truth, but do not imitate evil. <laughs> Excuse me. But imitate good. He who does good is of God. He who does evil has not seen God. Don't follow these men that want the preeminence. You see somebody who's always jockeying for position in Christian relationships, always wanting to be at the front, in the public eye, never content with taking a back seat and letting someone else. Well, don't, don't follow them. That's a sign that he's not acting as of God. He's following his own way. And it's evil. Now there's a third gentleman here brought to us in verse 12, Demetrius. And all we know of him is what John says. Demetrius has testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Widely accepted and honored man. I testify to him too, and you know my testimony is true. And he's speaking here as an apostle with the gift of discernment, evidently. And he says, I want to underscore what everybody thinks about Demetrius. Here's a man you can trust. He's a man of the truth. He uh, has borne testimony from all that he is, he is to be trusted. And evidently, Demetrius was the bearer of this letter to Gaius. And he's one of those missionaries that went out uh, traveling from place to place. And that's why I reserve verses 7 and 8 to comment on in connection with Demetrius, because they describe the kind of men of which he was a sample. Verse 7, For they have set out for his sake, or the name's sake, the sake of the name, and have accepted nothing from the heathen. So we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers in the truth. Uh, here, here's the first uh, group of traveling itinerant missionaries. And they were evidently going around from place to place, and they would uh, enjoy the hospitality of the churches in the various areas and would labor 
as evangelists in that area, reaching out into places around where the church had not reached yet, but being supported and strengthened by these various churches, and not ministering to the people of the church, but evangelizing out from the church, yet supported by them here. And again, there are three things that the Apostle John says of them. He says, first of all, they've gone out. They've set out. They've left things behind. They gave up their income and their work and their calling and went out to this, to obey this higher calling of God. Now, not everyone goes. It was true in the early church as it is today. Uh, there were some who, who were to stay, as Gaius was, and help support these. But there were those then as there are now to whom God the Holy Spirit said, Come, I've called you to a special task. And they left things and laid aside the possibility of luxury and uh, comfort and went out and thus obeyed the Great Commission. Now the motive that impelled them is given here too. They went out for his name's sake, literally for the name's sake, the Greek said. The name is not even mentioned, but who does not know what name he means? The name of Jesus. Remember, back in the Old Testament, the Jews treated the name of God in a unique way. The name of God, Jehovah, which appears throughout the Old Testament, was, was called the ineffable tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means four letters, and ineffable means unspeakable. So that whenever they came to these four Hebrew letters for the God, they did not dare speak them. So sacred, so holy was the name. But And even when they wrote them, the scribes would change their pen, take a brand new pen, write the four letters, and then throw the pen away, start with another one. And they'd change their garments before they'd even write the sacred name. So uh, so reverent did they regard the name of God. And you see, in a passage like uh, uh, the famous uh, Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. There you have the name occurring twice, and just to write that verse, they'd have to have two changes of garments and two changes and four changes of pens in order to write it. Well, that was the way they regarded it. Now, that name, you see, is the name in the New Testament of Jesus. Remember in Philippians, where Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Now, this is the underlying motive for missionary work in the first century. And it ought to be the underlying motive for missionaries today. You see, it isn't the need of people that calls us out to go into different places of the world to preach the gospel. Because need is abundant everywhere. Everyone without Christ is in need. And sometimes the most pathetic cases are not those who have physical needs, but those who have everything materially, but are simply wretched, piteous people in their own inner spirit. 
they are sometimes the most pitiful of cases. But uh, that's why missionaries should not make appeal. I, I'm convinced along the line of of leprous sores and crying babies and miserable people. Although we certainly must not turn a a hard and calloused heart to these human needs. But the thing that really lays hold to drive people out is the is the sense of honor and glory due to the name of Jesus. I remember uh, this January when John R. W. Stott from All Souls Church in England was at Mount Hermon. I was greatly impressed by the fact that he underscored this as the great motive for missions. He said it was not uh, these other things, but primarily and above all was a jealousy for the name of God. A, A sense of jealousy in our hearts that he should not be denied that which is rightfully his. That the Lord Jesus has died for the sins of men everywhere. And he longs to have from every tribe and nation people for his name. To the honor and glory of his name. And the thing that impelled these people out was this consciousness of the hunger of God for people from every tribe and nation of earth. And their their jealousy that God should not be denied that for which he had come. The Lord Jesus should have that which belongs to his name and worthy of his name. That's what sent them out. And that's what sends people out today. And you'll notice the part that those who stay at home are to have. Verse 8, I think, is one of the greatest missionary verses in the Bible. Look at it. So we, we who stay at home, ought to support. Ought comes from the word owe it. We owe it to them to support, to underwrite such men that we may be fellow workers in the truth. This is the graduation season. And so many people now are sporting fancy degrees after their name. Someone showed me a list of a man's name the other day that had ten degrees after it. Uh, DDT and PhD and... LSD and I don't know what all. <laughs> but what, how would it be if when you got to glory, you, the Lord wrote FWT after your name? Fellow worker in the truth. Wouldn't that be great? What a degree to have. FWT, fellow worker in the truth. Well, that's what spread the gospel throughout all the Roman Empire and in a quiet way underwrote, uh, under undermined all the false ideas of paganism and planted the cross at last in the capital of Rome itself. It was this this hunger for the honor under the name. Now John closes his letter with these wonderful personal words. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk together face to face. Peace be to you, the friends greet you, and greet the friends there, every one of them. What an intimate little letter, isn't it? And it's as though it came, you see, not only from John, but from the Lord himself. And I like to read this letter as though it was reflecting what the Lord Jesus is saying to his own church. Read it that way. 
This is what he really is saying to us. I had much I'd like to write to you about. He's written the whole book here. And he has much more. But he says, I'd rather not write with pen and ink. But I hope to see you soon. And we will talk together face to face. Not what you want? That face-to-face encounter with the one whose name holds a sacred spot in every Christian's breast. Face-to-face. Let's stand together and pray it be dismissed. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you that here in this 20th century hour, your name has lost none of its ancient power to compel men to draw and to attract to bring us to yourself. As we sang earlier, in times of stress, times of danger, times of peril, times of heartache, we exhort ourselves and one another to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We thank you, Lord, for this, for the opportunity to turn our eyes once again to you tonight. Pray that you'll strengthen our hearts and encourage us to the task of honoring the name here below until we see thee face to face. We ask in your name. Amen.